Good morning, church. Do me a favor, take your copy of God's Word, whether that's in a written copy or electronic, and turn to the book of 1 John. It's a letter written by John, 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 1. And then I would find something to record what God says to you, whether that's pen, pencil, lipstick, mascara, Crayola, your thumbs on your device, or whatever you have, and, and find a way to put down what God says today. Have you ever had anything in your life that you've you just established this is just going to be the way it is? I, I can't resolve this. It's too complex or too overwhelming. The Gordian knot is a phrase that's often been used to refer, refer to a complex or unsolvable problem. But it, it comes from a legend that took place regarding Alexander the Great. It was 333 BC. Alexander the Great marches his Macedonian army into the Phrygian capital of Gordian. And there in Gordium, he found a wagon tied to its yoke with a knot that was so tightly entangled it was impossible to unravel. The legend says that the owner, Gordius, the father of King Midas, supposedly said that any man that could solve the problem of that knot, that could get the entanglements untangled, would receive as a reward the rulership of all of Asia. So as the story goes, Alexander the Great takes out his sword and he just slices the knot right down the middle. I'm not sure if that's what Gordius had intended, but that accomplished the purpose. We do know this. Alexander the Great became not only the ruler of Persia, of Asia, but also the Lord of Egypt. He was a conqueror. And yet he died at age 32. There, there's some debate about what the cause may have been, but it's widely thought that he died of alcoholism. The reasons for that... Historians record that he did kill one of his generals just because he himself was in a drunken rage. And then he hosted a, par a party. He sponsored a party where 41 of his peers died at the party from alcohol poison. So it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that he too may have been an alcoholic. I want you to think about that for a moment. Could it be possible to have conquered worlds, but not conquer yourself? I think the answer is yes. Some of us are dealing with that in our lives. We have this Gordian knot, this thing that seems unresolvable, overwhelming, too complex for us. For some, it involves opioids or other drugs or alcohol. For others, it's food or work. Maybe for others still it's cutting or some form of self-harm. It may be gambling or gaming, which many would think is harmless. Maybe porn or something as seemingly subtle as social media. Don't be confused. Not all of these have the same consequences, do they? But all of these can be habitual activities or even sinful activities in our life that keep us from experiencing God's best. They can come in and take control of us and conquer us. What we've learned in Scripture as we've journeyed through Romans is that even the Apostle Paul can relate to this. This should be comforting to you. Romans chapter 7, verse 22, Paul says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Paul would go on to say, So I do these things I don't want to do, I don't do the things I do want to do, and it's a battle. The Apostle Paul you realize who that is? He wrote a large part of the book, like 13 of what we call the epistles or the letters of Paul. 
He went on at least three missionary journeys, and he started at least 14 churches in the known world. And, and yet what he's saying is there's something that I struggle with in my life that is sinful, that may be habitual, that may be causing me to be described as an addict. And we all battle this way. So I want to just clarify for all of us that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, yes, you become a new creation, but the flesh does not disappear. The battle rages on. The war continues. And we see an illustration of this in one of the miracles of Jesus. Do you remember when he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead? Lazarus, come forth! And he did from the dead. But there was a problem. Do you remember what the problem was? He was still bound with grave clothes. And so it's possible to be alive and yet not free. And that's where some of you are. You've got this new life in Christ, but you're not experiencing the freedom that he wants you to enjoy. So I go back and I think about the Apostle Paul who describes himself as the chief of sinners and think, oh, God, if, if you could use the Apostle Paul, do you think maybe you can use me? And I believe as I look in Scripture, the answer is yes, but we have to follow God's plan. We, we have to do it His way. We have to deal with the flesh, the things that bind us, those complex, those seemingly unresolvable issues, according to Scripture. So let me just remind you what we learned last week. We learned that we are at war 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 says, for we live not in the world, or though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are the weapons of the world, are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And so we said this battle, this war that we're all in is primarily taking place in the mind that our enemy, the father of lies, Satan himself, is at war with us. And yet we've got good news. God has given us divine power to break down strongholds, to take thoughts captive, and to experience his best. And when Christ followers believe the lies of the enemies, we don't experience that. We forfeit God's best. We develop strongholds in our lives that can only be demolished through the power of the gospel. This doesn't mean the war stops, though, does it? The battle rages on. And so today, as we gather here, most professing to be a part of what we call the family of God, the body of Christ... Saved believers, some of us gather here as prisoners of war. You're in the enemy's grips. You're a prisoner of a habitual sin or addictive behavior, and you're stuck. You're in, attempting to unravel the Gordian knot, but there's good news. You don't have to stay stuck. There is hope. In fact, that's what this whole thing is about. That's what Jesus came to tell us. In fact, Jesus said that in Luke 4 and verse 18. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind to set the oppressed free. Isn't that good news, church? That's God's intent. So how do we live that out? That's what we're going to talk about. I want to pray once more first. But before I do, I want to ask you a few questions. If you're stuck, do you really want to get unstuck? Because last week we discovered, you know, a stronghold is something that's holding on to you, but it's also something often that you're holding on to. And really these truths that are, I believe, life-changing, they're of God. They only apply if you want to be unstuck, unraveled, to be set free from the cycle. So I want us to pray, but if you'd be so bold, let me just tell you what I'm going to do, and maybe you would do it too. Maybe you just hold out your hands, just open-palmed before the Lord and say, God, I need what you've got, all right? Father, in the name of Jesus... 
Man, we've had a sweet time already worshiping you. We have sung truth. You're fighting our battles. You're giving us victory. And we believe that. And now we open your word. Perfect, true, timeless, powerful. And we just ask it, give us what we need. Teach us, Lord. Make us different. Give us eyes that would see and ears that would hear and a mind that's receptive so that, Lord, our hands and our heart might be filled even now with what you would want us to have. And Lord, I pray once more. Oh God, I pray that you'd move me out of the way, that my words would be your words, my thoughts would be your thoughts. And that miracle that changed my life, the miracle of redemption, that it would take place even among hearers today. And for this we're grateful. And this we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 1 John chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. And let me just pause and, and say as a pastor, particularly when you're talking about tough things like this message will be today. I, I think it's important as a hearer that you understand the intent of the truth that is shared. Jesus said that he's come that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. Scripture is, is full of reminders that the Christian life should be a life of joy. And yet, as somebody who spent my life around professing Christ's followers, I have to confess, a lot of people seem to be lacking joy. And what John is going to teach us here, and, and the whole intent of, of this teaching time together, is, is that you understand that joy is found when, when you allow God to take those things out of our life that he does not intend to be there. Joy is found when we live our lives in the way that he has set forth. So how does he intend us to live? This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. That, that's the first of three if statements like that you're going to find in these short verses. If we do this, then here's what's going on. That's the first one. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Here's the second one. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And here's the last one. If we claim that we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. John begins this letter like most of the New Testament, this is a letter to Christ's followers. And, and John begins this by describing the impact of the incarnation of Christ. What, it, what is incarnation? The incarnation is God being made carnate. God becoming carnality. He, he becomes one of us. That, that's what we celebrate at the Christmas season. That, that God became flesh. That 100% God, Jesus was also 100% human. We can't fathom that in, in our human mind, but that's what we believe. God incarnate. And, and what John is saying is that when God came onto this created planet that he spoke into existence, it changed everything because for the first time since the Garden of Eden, it, it changed man's relationship with sin. God created mankind without sin, and, and then our great-grandparents, they just messed this whole thing up, and they brought sin into the world, and, and what we believe is now we are born with that nature of sin. The scar of sin is upon us before we do the first wrong thing or fail to do the first right thing, and so this cycle of sinfulness has just made this scarring impact on the world, but when Jesus came to the world, when God became carnate, there began to be a different relationship with sin. Why? Well, Jesus was the only one since the garden who did not sin. And thus, he was the only one who could truly pay that punishment, that penalty for sin. 
Jesus would go on to live his life perfectly and to die on the cross as that perfect sacrifice for sin. He would take our place, our punishment, and what we believe theologically. In other words, what the Bible teaches about what we know about God is that when Jesus died on the cross, it gives us the opportunity to place our sin debt, our sin load, all the sin that we carry on him and trust that he can handle it. That's why we call it the gospel, the good news that everything has changed. And so what John is saying is just as Jesus was incarnate in this world, as he came into the world and it changed the relationship with sin, if you say Jesus is incarnate in you, Jesus was born into you, it should change you in sin. Now that was a little bit of teaching, but I want to make sure you understand that. You got it? If Jesus is born into the manger of your heart, it changes you. And so ultimately that means, and this is important, kind of the thesis, ultimately all of our sin problems are Jesus issues that deal with what we believe about God. And I think that's going to be important as we try to tackle some of those. So let's dive in. I've called this message, Breaking Free from the Chains of Sin and Addiction. So what is addiction? Addiction. Somebody said it's just seeing something as unchangeable that's outside of the will and the Word of God. So something that God doesn't want me to do, and yet it's that Gordian knot. I can't resolve it. It's too complex. Mark Batterson says it's a compulsive behavior that results in reward but has adverse effect on us. Now, that's getting to something we're going to address. So this habitual sin, maybe this addiction, it does help me. I feel good about it, but then I pay for it. This is a simple definition. Anything we don't want to do, but we can't stop doing it. That kind of says it, doesn't it? Listen to this more formal definition. It comes from a book called Addiction, a Banquet in the Grave. Addiction is bondage to the rule of substance activity or state of mind which then becomes the center of life defending itself from truth so that even bad consequences don't bring repentance and lead to further estrangement from God so whether it's a substance or a way of thinking or a lifestyle this sin becomes the center of my life and it conquers me and even if it hurts me I don't feel hurt enough to change. Yale Medicine describes what happens when we experience addiction. It explains the biochemical nature. It says addiction changes the brain structure and how it functions. The brain has a natural reward system. The rewards pathways function in the brain is to reinforce sets of behavior. And actions that help us to do good or feel good are rewarded through a chemical called, do you know what it is? Dopamine. Dopamine is a satisfying jolt that encourages you to repeat the same action. And addiction hijacks our natural reward system. All addictions produce a pleasure surge of dopamine and cause us to become dependent on these behaviors or substances. And the problem is that we become tolerant to these addictive things and we need to do more and more to get a better and better high. Now I get it. This isn't exactly... An amen, that's right message. Because some of you are thinking, man, I get it, but if I nod too much, everybody's going to be looking at me. Just hang tight. I think I'll free you up in a minute. Because what I want to suggest to you is that all of us have these destructive habits. All of us have these sinful behaviors, these addictions that we matter, that we battle. As I mentioned ago, it may be something with, with very serious physical impact like opioids or alcohol. It, it may be something very common like food or work. It may be something very painful like cutting or something very stimulating in the moment like gambling. It may be something very private like pornography or very subtle like social media. You see what I'm saying? It begins to control you. It becomes the center. And even though you see that it's having harmful impacts, you don't change. So even among Christ followers, what we do is we battle these with a couple of uh, inappropriate ways that don't work. As prisoners of war, sometimes we just settle in and 
we, we're, we know we're stuck, but we just decide to decorate the prison cell. So, so we just give the impression that things are not as bad as they are. Just try to make it look better. And so when it comes to our personal decisions, we justify them or we rationalize them. And, and we really act like this isn't really hurting anybody else. It's not as bad as some people think. It's better than it is. But the second way is the most common. I call this waste management. You know what waste management is? Waste management is one of the biggest corporations in the world. You know what waste management does? You may see it in your neighborhood. It's that big truck that comes by. It has WM on it, waste management. What do they do? They take the trash from your trash can and they put it in the back of the truck and it disappears, right? Wrong. It does not disappear. What do they do with the waste? They just push it down. Why? They make it compact so that they can add what? More waste, more trash. And that's what a lot of us do in the church. But it's called sin management. We just push it down and we try to just pretend if we just act like it's not there and just cram it down and maybe nobody will see it and maybe it'll stop hurting me. And this is the way it looks. We focus on particular things that we just don't like. Now, I grew up in church, so I understand this. I can remember when someone came and spoke at our church and I felt like I needed to go home and find an album in our house that I could break in half because it had to be bad. I mean, I know what it's like to hear, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. I, I mean, I know what it's like to, to hear that guest preacher come into town and say, I tell you what, bless God, cigarettes may not kill you and send you to hell, but they'll make you smell like you've been there, amen. Amen. And then I remember what it's like to be looking up and saying, yeah, but this guy's like 300 pounds. That can't be right either. I mean, he's full of fried chicken. <laughs> See, sin management is like holding a beach ball underwater uh, out over at the coast. You're having fun with the beach ball and you think, man, I'm going to push this thing under. And it feels good for a minute. And then you realize this thing wants to come up. And then you feel like you're strong. And you say, no, I'm going to keep it under. And then this thing wants to come up. And eventually you, use, you lose the battle. And what happens? That beach ball comes up and it hits you in the face. And you look like a dummy. And that's the way it is with sin management. You, you can't, it doesn't work. And that's why some of you have said, I, I've, I've read these books. I've tried these diets. I, I've gone to see these people. And, and it, it's just not working. Why? What's going to get the beach ball to keep from hitting you in the face. The only thing you can do is pull your pocket knife out of your bathing suit, which I wouldn't recommend you have. But if you pull your pocket knife out of your bathing suit and you stab that beach ball, it's going to let the air come out and it can't hurt you anymore. That's what I want you to do with the sin that you're trying to manage. Let the Holy Spirit of God cut into your life today in such a way that it is dealt with once and for all. What's the solution? Last week, I told you, you've got to stop believing lies. That taking thoughts captive, part of taking thoughts captive is realizing that the Satan, our enemy, is a liar. He's a deceiver. And so you've got to stop believing the lies of the enemy. This week, I'm getting a little more personal. I'm going to tell you, you've got to stop telling lies. Some of you, you're telling lies. Let me give you three of them. Some of you are saying, I'm not liable. What does that mean? Well, what you're really saying is, you know, it, it's not my fault. My daddy was an alcoholic. Or I've, I've struggled with weight all my life. Or I've just got, I'm, I'm Scottish, I've just got angry issues. And you, you find some kind of reason to justify what you're doing and so you're saying, it's not on me. I'm not liable. And that's a lie. Some of you are saying uh, another lie. You're saying, I'm not forgivable. And this breaks my heart because you, you feel the shame and the guilt of sin. It's like you know it's sin, but instead of running to Jesus, what you're saying is there's no hope for me. I'm lost. And, and, and even coming into a place like this or hearing these words is overwhelming because you're thinking, oh, I just can't take it anymore. I, no way a loving God would forgive me. 
And yet that's exactly what scripture teaches. The Bible says that there's no way that God could love you more than he loves you right now. And there's nothing you could do that would cause him to love you. And he left. And in fact, he makes it so clear that he says, I, I demonstrated my love in that while you were still a sinner, my son Jesus died for you. Oh, the love of God is vast. And there is no one that hears these words that is unforgivable. Or maybe you're telling this lie, I'm not accountable. You'd be surprised how many people are bold enough to tell me as a pastor that from time to time. It's not your business what I do. That's a big one in our society today. Let your truth be your truth. My truth will be my truth. Well, you can believe that lie if you want, but that's a lie. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And one day everyone will stand before our holy God and account for the life that we've lived. So are you living a lie? That's what John's saying. He's saying some of you are, are walking in darkness and you're living that lie. And so I'm going to tell you it's time to stop. And start with this. It's time to stop lying to others. That's what he talks about in verses 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not live out the truth. Don't live that lie. You know it. You know our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates. What, what's the number one reason they say they don't want to come to church? Because the church is full of hypocrites. Now that's stupid. Because hypocrites are everywhere, right? I went to Publix this week and it was full of hypocrites. But I still needed to get a dozen eggs for nine dollars. Man, there's a big game at Raymond James Stadium tomorrow night. There was, a, there was a big one last night in Jacksonville. Man, talk about a comeback. Guess what? Both of those stadiums, full of hypocrites. Hypocrites are everywhere. But it does mean something. It's somebody who says one thing and does another. So God's word says, if you, if you say as you're walking in the light, if you say you've got this relationship with God that's changed you, and yet your actions, your attitude, your lifestyle says otherwise, you're living a lie. But sometimes we don't see that because the darkness deceives us. We begin to believe we can do it on our own. So we just walk through and we think it's like the emperor who has no clothes. We think nobody notices. The word walk that he used there is literally a word that's describing a present tense. So it's happening right now, and it's a continual action. So I'm just presently continuing to do whatever I want and act like the words I'm saying will make you think I'm doing something different. The problem is not only do others see, God sees. John is saying if you truly have a changed heart, it's going to lead to changed habits. It's going to change your want to. You, you don't want to just be content with the way that you've been living. And the problem is, we say we want changed hearts, but I think a lot of times we just want changed circumstances. We're not willing to do the things that are truly necessary for our lives to be changed. So we stay in the darkness and we hide and we fake it till we make it. But we don't make it. And what he's saying is, when you come into the light... You open up, and you get cleaned up. By the way, that's why different support groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, that's why they're popular because people can come together and they feel like, all right, it's out in the open. Now I'm accepted. And by the way, that's a, lot of, that's a reason a lot of people feel more comfortable at their neighborhood bar than they do their neighborhood church. Because they feel like I can go in there and be myself and not be judged. And, and yet scripture teaches when we get this right. We don't walk in the dark. We bring it into the light. And that just helps our fellowship. So um, just a reminder to you of who we are as a church. This is not a museum for saints. This is a hospital for sinners like me. We come here because we're needy, we're desperate, we need that touch of Jesus. 
It's a great illustration of this in Scripture. I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version. King David, he blew it in a big way. Adultery, murder, he lied to everybody about it. He thought everything was fine until God's man came to him and said, Hey, you got a problem. He did this in a creative way, but basically he looked at David and said, You got to get right with God. There are going to be consequences to your actions, but you've got to get this out in the open. And so literally, even your friends who never come to church, who don't proclaim to be Christ followers, they know about David and Bathsheba. Everybody knows about his darkest moments. What's the result? This morning, just telling you, if you're in the Word every day, God speaks to you. This morning, I was in Acts 13. I'm reading through Acts 13. The Holy Spirit inspired Dr. Luke to write the book of Acts hundreds and hundreds of years after the life and death of David. And you know what he says? And then there's David, a man after God's heart. When you bring it into the light, it's freeing. Stop lying to others. Number two, stop lying to yourself. It's time to stop lying to yourself. Verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not even in it. You see, once we start walking into the truth, we see, hey, everybody's in this mess. My problems may be different, but in the eyes of God, they're not different than the problems of everybody else. Everybody's struggling with some issue. Watch this. How many of you would be bold enough to, to say, I know somebody in, in my circle of the world, my corner of influence, I know somebody um, that's an addict. Let me see your hands. I, I do. Anybody? Okay. That's most of you. And, and some of you, by the way, if Jesus were here and he'd say, everybody raise your hand, some of you would never raise your hand in church. But um, now, how many of you would say, I'm an addict? You see, and yet I've spent already almost 30 minutes telling you that in the eyes of God, all of us, like the Apostle Paul, we struggle with this thing called sin. And unless you're better than he is, you're, you've got this battle where you say, I'm doing the things I don't want to do and I'm not doing the things I do. And yet it's hard to admit it, isn't it? And, and so that's why in verse 9 he says, hey, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. You've got to decide if you agree with God about who you are. That's what confession is. And confession has great power. Every month I read through the Psalms and every month I'm struck by this. I've, I've seen it at work in my life. I've, I've seen it at work in the lives of people that I've deeply loved. It says in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. You may feel like it's impossible for me to come clean, but the truth is what we cover, he'll one day uncover, but what we uncover, he covers with his blood. He does what we think would be impossible. He meets our need, but we have to come clean. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But when I don't see my sin for what it is and deal with it, a cycle of addiction just begins. Now, we could spend our whole time on this. We could do a series just on addiction, but let me just give you how this cycle looks. The addiction, sin, hurt, habit, hang up in your life becomes your identity. And so you become content with just saying, that's just who I am. And, and so with well-intentioned organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous, um, they foster this because I'm, I'm taught to stand up and say, hi, I'm Paul, and I am what? An alcoholic. And so in our society, you're so pushed to label yourself as what you've done. But that's not biblical. According to Scripture, God doesn't look at you based on what you've done. He looks at you based on who you are. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are in Christ. You're a different person. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old things have passed away. All things have become new. If you're a follower of Christ, your identity is in him. Don't say, hi, I'm Susan and I'm, I'm a lesbian. Or I'm, I'm Fred and 
I, I struggle with prescription, or I, I'm, I'm addicted to prescription drugs. No, you, you, you begin to say, I'm Paul. I'm, I'm a saved, changed, blood-cleansed follower of Christ who struggles with the sin of alcohol. But if you don't do that, it'll become your identity. And then the addiction, the sin, the hurt, the habit, the hang-up, it breeds insecurity. Why? Because I just feel hopeless. I've failed so many times. I've tried this diet. I've read this book. I promised I wouldn't do it anymore. So I just feel like a failure. Again, not what Scripture teaches you to be. And then the addiction, the sin, the hurt, the habit, the hang-up just becomes an escape. Because who wants to feel like a failure? And so whatever the issue, you begin to self-medicate. And make no mistake, that's what's happening when you take that drink, when you pop that pill, when you steal away and look on your phone or on your screen when you go to the cupboard and just say, I, I just, I'm not really hungry, but I got to eat. Whatever the issue, I'm not picking on those. There are dozens of issues that we struggle with, even in this room. And when that becomes the escape that is a medication to ourselves, it creates unhealth in our life. And then that addiction, that sin, that hurt, that habit, that hang up really becomes our idol. Remember, because that's what addiction is. It's the center of who we are. It drives who we are, regardless of the consequences. So I can know I'm about to lose my marriage, but I'm driven by this. I can recognize that I'm hurting people around me, but I'm driven by this. I look in the mirror and realize I'm literally killing myself, but I'm driven by this. So what do I do? I want you to listen carefully. I would never trivialize any of this or seek to oversimplify it in a way that's not biblical. Some of you may need therapy. We believe Christian counseling is a benefit that you could utilize. Some of you may need a rehab program. That can be helpful at some stages. A lot of you would benefit by coming weekly to our Celebrate Recovery program that meets here on this campus every Friday night. You would realize you're not alone. But none of that helps if you don't really look in and see what is the root of the problem. And these things I've been describing, the root of the problem is sin. That's what John was saying if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. So how does that look, literally? Number one, we expose our sin to the light. We bring it out in the open. Whether that be just you and God and, and that gets you down the road or you and a counselor or you and a pastor, you and a group, you expose your sin to the light. Why? Because light disinfects. Remember when we were in the heat of COVID and every time you turn on the TV or every time you open the internet, somebody was selling you something to help with COVID? No, we've never done this before. They were making it up, but somebody was coming up with something. And if we as a church would have had the money, let me just tell you what we would have done. We would have bought these lights they were trying to sell that supposedly the lights were somehow making everything clean. We didn't have the money, so we don't have those. Sorry. But there is truth, right? Light disinfects. And that's what John's saying. Every great movement of God has begun with public repentance. If you look historically, every great movement of God, and we need a movement of God. Church, do you agree we need a movement of God in our church, in our community, in our nation, in our world? Every time we look at this historically, it begins with public repentance, with people of faith coming out and just saying, Man, I just need people to know, I'm blowing it in this area, and I'm sick of it. I'm exposing this to the light. Some people would say the road to recovery begins with self-discovery. That's true if that self-discovery is that you're discovering who you are as a sinner who needs God's grace. Expose your sin to the light. Secondly, express your sin to the Lord. That's the confession. 
Confess is a word that simply means I agree with you, God. It's agreeing with God about what's not right in your life. Ignatius, the early church father in Antioch, said it's impossible for a man to be freed from the habit of sin before he hates it. Just as it's impossible to receive forgiveness before confessing the trespasses. Number three, expect your life to be different. Begin to assume that God's going to work in you. Remember, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. God's changed your relationship with sin. You are not a slave to sin. You are a slave to Christ. He is your master. That addiction, that hurt, that habit, that hangover, that, that sin, that is not your master. Don't reduce your faith to just receiving forgiveness without experiencing the cleansing and the purifying power of God. So how do we do this? Well, last week I ended with three words. I'm going to give you those again, and, but add a fourth real quickly. The first one is this, feed. You got to feed your mind. You, you got to start putting the truth where you've been hearing and telling lies. Now, where do we find the truth, class? Where do we find the truth? The Bible, God's Word. Get into the book. Make this a priority in your life. I want to say again to you, if Jesus used the Word of God to battle the demon of hell himself, Satan, when he was tempted in the wilderness, why do we think we can do this without knowing the Word of God? Feed on the Word of God. Number two, free yourself. Determine to be real. Stop playing the games. Don't leave today without saying, I'm going to be honest about where I am and who I am and what I'm dealing with. I've got to get this out. The sickest I've ever been was about 20 years ago. I have some friends here that may remember this. I had traveled to Central Asia. I've then met up with the rest of our group in London. I was supposed to come home the next day so the, the night before we left we all went to a pub there in London and got burgers and I don't know if my burger wasn't cooked or if it wasn't cow or what but I got the sickest I've ever been I got so sick that that whole group left me in London by myself pray for Kimberly she's still bitter about that by the way I stayed there for two extra days the hotel doctor had to come to my room and try to help me I was so sick why? I was poisoned. The only way to get well was to get what? Cleansed. It's not pretty, but it's true. And it's not pretty in some of your lives, but it's true. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then the last one. Or the next to last one is focus. <laughs> you you got to understand this is serious business. Some, some of you aren't focused. And I, I know we're getting late, but uh, this is good. i got to help you. Raise your hand if you've been to uh, Golden Corral before. Ours is closed down, but have you been to Golden Corral? Man, that's like heaven on earth, right? You walk in, you pay one price, you get one plate, and there's like endless steak before you. Endless baked potatoes. I mean, there's other stuff too. Salad, but who in the world would mess with that? Endless dessert. Now, I'm not judging. I'm just pointing out. Rarely do you see a skinny person in Golden Corral. And I'm just saying, rarely do you see somebody walking back to their table with just a little bit of salad on their plate. I mean, it's like overflowing and piled to the high. Like, they're about to close this place down. We better move quick. And then what happens? You get to your table. The waiter or waitress comes up and says, Sir, would you like something to drink? And you say, Yes, I'll take a Diet Coke. <laughs> I mean, seriously? And yet that's how we live spiritually. Get this. We live our lives however we want to. We do everything that makes us feel good in the moment. We go through the motions like, hey, just bring it on. I need pleasure. And then we give 90 minutes to God on Sunday as a Diet Coke. And we think that's going to change things. Doesn't work. So you got to focus. And then you got to fellowship. You got to be accountable. That's what he's saying. When you walk in the light, you have fellowship with one another. 
Someone said it's a raw power and genuine freedom that comes when you name your sin in the presence of a loving community. Naming the sin out loud to people you know and trust has the power to break chains. So stop lying to others. Stop lying to yourself. But here's a big one. Stop lying about God. That's what he says in, in verse 10. If we claim we've not sinned, we make, him at, we make him out to be a liar. What is he reminding us? This whole thing's not about us. Your focus has been wrong. You're trying to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You're trying to fix all your problems, but it's not about you. This is a worship issue. Have you understand who God is? That Jesus came in this world to change your relationship with sin. And if he's come into your life, he, he's done that to change your relationship with him. So see him for who he is and trust him. Stop putting other things before him. Stop letting other things occupy the throne room of your life. Now, how can we do that? We recognize that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just. Do you get that? Now, how was he faithful and just? What did he do to make him faithful and just? There's one simple act. His death on the cross. Please understand, this is what Christianity is based on. If Jesus had not died on the cross, the only thing that would be faithful and just for us is for him to send us to hell. That's what would be the right response. But what makes him faithful and just is that he took our punishment. And because Jesus took my punishment, when I trust him, <laughs> he can say, I got you, Paul. And Paul, when you look in the mirror and when others look at you, don't be defined by those bad things you do. I don't like those. I want you to get those right. But that doesn't define you. You'd be defined by who I am. Because you're clothed in my righteousness. If you are a saved follower of Jesus Christ, regardless of your struggles, what you believe about Jesus is where it really begins. Every issue becomes a Jesus issue. So what do you believe about Jesus? Let's bow our heads together. You know, when we surveyed on Christmas week what people needed help breaking free from, overwhelmingly, addictions, habitual sin, overwhelmingly, this was the number one thing. So it's fitting that we take a little extra time today and just see what does God's word really have to say. Now some of you have some business you need to do and we're going to provide that opportunity in the next five or six minutes. We're going to sing a powerful song of worship. And here's what needs to happen for some of you. Some of you, whether in your seat or standing there or some of you, maybe where you would come and just kneel here at the front of this room, this carpeted area. You just need to give some of these struggles back to the Lord. Just let him know that you've been, you've been telling lies, whether it's to others or to yourself or about who he is. You just need to deal with that. that that's going to be your first step. It may be that you need to just come and pray with one of the pastors here. Maybe there's something you say, hey, I, I need to just, I need to voice this. I can't hear this message and not voice that I'm struggling with this. I know that's a stretch. This is not really an amen message. Either. This is more of an oh me message. And so people generally don't run down the aisle to volunteer things after a talk like this. But maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you're here and you realize the reason nothing is changing in your life is because you've never been changed. You've never begun a relationship with Jesus. 
If that's you, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Man, God loves you. I know you may feel guilty or untouchable, but God loves you. Not only that, He wants you. And it's simple. You can cry out to Him. You can say, God, I know I need you. I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me, Jesus. and I want you to take control of my life. You can do that without any of us. But here's what I'm going to invite you to do today. My close friends and pastors from this church, Pastor Zach, Pastor Nick, they're going to be standing here. If there's other needs, I'll be standing here. Pastor Eliel will be standing here. We can have deacons and others standing here. We, I want to invite you, if that's you, as we begin to sing, just walk down and say, hey, I, I desperately need Jesus today. That's all you need to say. Or I need to be saved. I mean, whatever you need to say, just tell them what God's saying to you. And then we'll sing, we'll finish this time, and we'll be done. Father, God, I know we've packed a lot into this time together, more than we usually do. But Lord, these truths really can transform lives here on this side of heaven. So God, I pray that you would use what we've said for your glory. And I pray that that change would take place. God, I pray that you would do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? As God begins to lead and move in your life, there are pastors here. You come. There is power.